You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I've been accused of a lot of things, but fast is not one of them. (laughs) Good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone is doing well. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, probably already there from our Scripture reading this morning. Luke, chapter 13, we'll be reading verses 1 through 5. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those eighteen on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, as we have already been reminded this morning through song, none of us would be alive in you had you not called us out by name just as you called Lazarus forth by name from the tomb. Had you not called each and every one of us out by our names, we would still be dead in the tomb. And so, Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace towards us. And as we go through this time this morning of looking at your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our guide. We pray that he would illumine the meaning of your word to our hearts. And as we look at this text, Lord, we're reminded of the brevity of life and the universality of death. No matter how it comes or when it comes, it will come to all of us. And we are to be ready. And so, Father, we pray that you would go with us now. And we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we read and expound your word. These things we ask in Christ's name and for his sake and glory. Amen. Amen. This is a message I have entitled, The Rest of Real Repentance. The Rest of Real Repentance. And as we have just read through this text, uh, this is not really a, necessarily a warm, fuzzy kind of a text. And um, as some of you may have noticed, this is dealing with disaster. This is dealing with calamity. And you may be thinking, wow, Justin's kind of a bummer to preach on something like this on a Christmas slash New Year's uh, sermon, but I trust as we work our way through this text, uh, yes, it is sobering, and yes, uh, we should take heed to it, but there is also great hope in this text. But it does deal with calamity, with disaster. And as we look around the world today, it's not hard to see that we are surrounded by disasters, are we not? We see it all the time. We see natural disasters. We see uh, wildfires. We see Floods, we see hurricanes, we see earthquakes, earthquakes just in recent years in 
in Haiti, in, in the Philippines, in Iran, kill multiple thousands, even tens of thousands of people. There are natural disasters all around us. Uh, just doing a little bit of research for this sermon, uh, in 1931 in China, there was a flood. And this one flood, 1931 in China, killed, some estimates are up to 4 million people. One flood, 4 million dead. Uh, just driving into church this morning, had on the radio, and I caught something, I heard something that was really low, and I turned it up a little, little bit because I heard the word tornado in Dallas, so I turned it up. And just last night, there was a tornado that uh, went through Dallas, and it actually lifted cars off of, and I know exactly where this is, off of the overpass, Interstate 30 in Dallas, lifted cars off of the overpass and dropped them onto the traffic below, and eight people were killed. And so there are disasters all around us, natural disasters. There are also man-made disasters, not in the sense of when our president likes to refer to them, but there are man-made disasters. There are wars. Uh, there is genocide. Uh, we think, of course, the Holocaust that happened in World War II as Hitler tried to exterminate all of the Jews on planet Earth, and he managed to kill about six million of them. Uh, there's genocide, and there's um, in 1915 in World War One there was also a Christian genocide. You hardly ever hear about this, but in 1915 in what is now modern day Turkey, the 1950 was um, referred to as the Ottoman Empire. There were over one million Christians murdered by the Muslims, and they literally crucified, literally crucified multiple, multiple tens of thousands of Christians simply because they are Christians. And by all other means of execution, killed upwards of one million Christians trying to exterminate Christians in uh, what is now modern-day Turkey. And so there are disasters, there are calamities all around us. In Job chapter 14, verse 1, Job says, Man who is born of woman is short of days and full of trouble. Man who is born of woman, that pretty much includes all of us, does it not? I think it's a safe bet that all of us here were born of a woman. And so if you are born of a woman, if you are here this morning, your days are short and they are full of trouble. Even if a man lives to be a hundred years old, when compared to the scope of eternity, that is very, very short. Our days here are short and they are full of trouble. And so this text deals with calamity and the meaning of it, not only why they happen, but the opportunities that are here, the sobering reminders and the opportunities that are here in calamities. But calamities, natural disasters, uh, wars, uh, disease, people getting sick, children getting cancer. This is one of the chief objections, not only to the God of the Bible, the only God, but also to the very notion of God in general. A lot of people reject God because of these very things. How could... There be a God when all of these calamities happen, when all these disasters happen. How could there be an all-loving, all-powerful God when so many innocent, quote-unquote, innocent people are killed? How could there be a God who... What kind of God would allow a little child to get cancer and die? What kind of God is that? What kind of God would allow for rape? What kind of God would allow for all of these horrific things? How could there really be a God? This is one of the chief objections to the God of the Bible. 
people use that. And yet the Bible has a great deal to say about calamities, a great deal to say about disasters. In a sense, uh, some natural disasters are judgments from God against the wicked. And we see that in Scripture. We see, of course, the uh, plagues that God brought to Egypt. Specific acts of judgment against specific wicked people. God brought, of course, the greatest natural disaster that the world has ever known was a great flood. And so that was a judgment against wickedness. So sometimes natural disasters are judgments against wicked people and wicked acts. Sometimes, however, natural disasters just happen just because we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world that is stained with sin and all of creation groans under that sin, under that uh, strain of sin, under the evil that is that has been introduced in the world and all of creation because of Adam and Eve's sin. Judgment can be in the form of a natural disaster, but dear friends, let's keep this in mind. When it comes to believers, and whenever a natural disaster happens, both the wicked and Christians are often sucked into it. But when it comes to a Christian, that is not a judgment. Okay, when it comes to a Christian, God is not judging believers through natural disasters or any other kind of disaster. That doesn't happen to believers. They are trials, yes. They are trials. They are trials that test our faith. They are trials that God uses to sanctify us and ultimately to glorify Himself. But when it comes to believers, these are not judgments from God. But to understand this, I have to understand a little bit about the theology and the mindset of the Jews, the ancient Jews, towards natural disasters. Now, in Jewish thought... In Jewish thought, when a calamity fell upon a group of people or or something bad happened to a person, that was a sure sign that God was judging that person. That they were outside of the favor of God. That they had done something deserving of that disaster. They had done something deserving of that calamity. Remember in John's Gospel, John chapter 9, when Jesus and His disciples were walking along and they saw a man who had been blind from birth. Remember this? And the disciples saw this man blind from the birth, and they asked him, they said, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they just assumed that the reason that man had been born blind, it had to be a direct result of either his sin or his parents. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said it was neither neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. But this was the mindset of the Jewish person, the ancient Jew, when it comes to came to disasters, calamities. Disaster came, something bad, uh, that, that was a result of their sin. That was God judging them. They were outside of God's favor. Jews thought they had the favor of God. Jews thought simply because they were Jews that they were within God's favor. Simply because... They could trace their ancestors back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That that meant they were within God's favor and God would bless them. God would bless them with material goods and they were within God's favor. And so when this calamity fell that we read about in Luke chapter 13, that really was a jolt. That was a challenge to the Jewish mindset. So let's go to the text and work our way through this. Verse 1, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Now on the same occasion... On the same occasion, that phrase ties this discourse to the discourse that preceded it. And the discourse that preceded it runs all the way through chapter 12. 
Beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, Jesus gives a lengthy discourse that runs all the way through the chapter, all the way through verse 59. So on the same occasion, it ties these two discourses together. Discourse of Luke 13 with the discourse that Jesus had been giving in Luke chapter 12. Now, when you read this in Luke chapter 12, and we won't, but throughout this discourse, Jesus is interrupted on three different occasions. In, chapter, in uh, verse 13 of chapter 12, an unidentified person interrupts him. just says someone asked a question, someone interrupted him. Then a little bit later in verse 41, the Apostle Peter interrupted Christ. Imagine that, huh? The Apostle Peter. Surely not Peter interrupting. But yes, uh, the Apostle Peter interrupted Christ. And then this is the third interruption. As chapter 13 inter- uh, opens, the third interruption. Now on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. These individuals are not named. We don't know who these people were. And in fact, we don't even know exactly what it was that they said. They're not quoted here, but they did interrupt Jesus with this account, this, this event that happened about Pilate coming down and mixing the Galileans' blood. Now, what had happened here... This happened in Jerusalem. This was at the Passover. And during Passover, many, many multiple thousands of animals were sacrificed in remission of sin to push back the sins just a little bit further. And so many animals were sacrificed. Some estimates up to 250,000 animals were sacrificed. And so you can imagine just the voluminous amount of blood and gore happening during Passover. Quarter million animals slaughtered. And what had happened is there were some Galileans, and Galileans had a bit of a reputation. They were known as being kind of rabble-rousers sometimes. They were known as being kind of um, uh, troublemakers, a bit bit, uh, 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 impetuous. And so what happened is these Galileans, who of course are not named, but these Galileans did something to tick Pilate off. Pilate was the governor at this time. He ruled from the year A.D. 26 to 36. And so he was the governor of Judea at this time. He was the one in control. And these Galileans had done something to tick Pilate off. Pilate was a very wicked man. Very wicked. He was was extraordinarily corrupt. He was sadistic. He was narcissistic. He carried out executions without any trials. He was selfish, greedy. Other than that, he was a great guy. But but Pilate was a horrid, horrid man. And these Galileans had done something to put a burr under his saddle. And so he tracked these men down. Not he himself, but he sent his soldiers to track these Galileans down. They found them in the temple during Passover while the animal sacrifices were going on. And Pilate had them slaughtered. He had them slaughtered. And their blood was mixed with all the blood from the animals that were also being sacrificed. And so Jesus asks a question. He he asks a question that was not even directly asked by the ones who interrupted him. The people who interrupted him didn't, you know, they're not quoted. So Jesus asked a question that had only been up to this point implied. But he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He said, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? 
He knew their thoughts. He was omniscient. And he, so he knew what they were thinking. Jesus had already talked about judgment in this discourse. It was read by Jim just a few moments ago. Jesus had already talked about judgment. And so that was what was in their mind. Jesus talked about uh, if, if you are one who has been accused and you've got to go to court, then Jesus said you better get right with your accuser before you get to the judge. Because if you don't get right with your accuser before you get to the judge, then you'll be turned over into prison. And what Jesus was teaching here is that your sins accuse you. You have broken God's law. You have a penalty over you. And you'd better get right with the judge before judgment comes. So that was the context. This was in people's minds. He had been talking about judgment. And so they asked him about this. This was an event that had been well known. Undoubtedly, if Jerusalem had had a newspaper, if there was a Jerusalem Gazette or the Jerusalem Post or something like that, would have made big headlines. Everybody knew about it. And so Jesus answered the question that everybody was thinking. Were these Galileans worse sinners? These ones who were slaughtered, were they worse sinners than all the other Galileans? And Jesus said, no. No. But I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. How could this happen? This didn't fit the Jewish theology. This didn't fit the Jewish mindset. Uh, yes, these were Galileans and they were known for being a little hot-headed, but, but they were still Jews. I mean, they were, they were at the temple during the Passover doing the sacrifices just like all the other Jews were doing. So how could this happen? These, these weren't pagans. You know, these, these weren't really bad guys. How could this have happened? This didn't fit the Jewish mindset. Some sinful behaviors carry inherent with them inherent consequences. You know, for example, if, if you are a chain smoker and you go through three or four packs of cigarettes a day, don't be surprised if you come down with emphysema or lung cancer. Uh, if you're an alcoholic and you drink like a fish, don't be surprised if you get sclerosis of the liver. If you're sexually immoral, don't be surprised if you get a disease. You know, some behaviors carry within those behaviors inherent consequences. But that's not what happened here. These were just Galileans doing their Jewish duty, going to the Passover, slaughtering their animals for their own sacrifices, and Pilate's men came in and slaughtered them, and their blood was mixed in. This didn't fit the Jewish mindset. Something else is going on here. But Jesus didn't stop here. He didn't stop here. Notice in verse 4, He continues. He says, Or, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, were they worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? You know, a lot of times when... Christians are posed with some of these questions. Why did this disaster happen? Where was God? Where was God when the tsunami killed 250,000 people in Indonesia? Where was God when the tsunami hit Japan just a few years ago? Where was God in 9-11? How could a good God, how could... How could your God allow something like this? You know, when a lot of Christians are posed with something like that, we get, we get real uncomfortable, don't we? We don't like to be asked those questions. We kind of 
a lot of people will kind of shirk back and we'll kind of, well, we'll kind of look down at our feet and stammer around and, you know, well, you know, we just, we just can't understand some of these things. We get real sheepish and we don't like to answer those questions. Jesus, however, he didn't shy away from it, notice. He didn't shy away from it at all. After he discussed the first calamity, he brought up another calamity. He didn't shy away from this. He wasn't embarrassed by this. He says, do you suppose those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, were they worse culprits than all the others in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also perish. He didn't shy away from it. He brought up yet another calamity. What happened here? Uh, Siloam was a kind of a suburb, if you will, of Jerusalem, down in southern Jerusalem. And you probably have heard the pool of Siloam. This was a a pool that the Bible references that uh, had a lot of water in it. People use this water, of course, for drinking, for bathing and other things, washing. And the Romans had built a series of aqueducts to bring in water. And um, one of these aqueducts, or at least a, a remnant of it, is still standing to this day. And it's an amazing structure. The Romans were amazing engineers. They built these aqueducts, huge structures to bring in water. Uh, and it was collected here at the Pool of Siloam. Uh, very large structures. They had uh, gateways underneath them, tunnels, and you could walk underneath these aqueducts. And periodically along these aqueducts, they had built large towers for defense purposes, for maintenance on the aqueduct itself. And apparently what had happened, and, and reading between the lines here, this was a recent event. This is something that had just happened. But one of these large towers fell. We don't know if it was under construction or if it was in need of repair or something. But whatever the cause was, this huge tower on the aqueduct fell and it killed 18 people underneath it. Jesus didn't shy away from answering these questions. He wasn't embarrassed by them. Do you suppose that these 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell, were they worse sinners than all the others in Jerusalem? And undoubtedly, when this tower fell, young, old, men, women, didn't matter. They were killed. Were they worse sinners? Jesus says, no, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The question is often asked. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? That's an age-old question. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But dear friends, that's the wrong question. That is the wrong question. The Bible is very clear that there are no good people. Now, most people think of themselves as good because what we like to do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. Oh, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. You know, I've, I've never I've never done what he's done. You know, I, I'm, I'm not it's not like I'm Hitler or or it's not like I'm. I'm those two Muslims in San Bernardino that just shot up 14 feet. I would never do something like that. I'm a good person. But the Bible is very clear that there are none good. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. There are no good people. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 9 says this. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? 
and I am pure from my sin. Who can say that? The answer, of course, to these rhetorical questions? No. No one. No one can say that. Dear friends, we are all sinners. We have all broken the laws of God many, many thousands of times. We are all liars. We are thieves. We are blasphemers. We are adulterers at heart at least. There are none who are good. So that's the wrong question. The question is not, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Because there are no good people. The question is this, why does God cause good things to happen to bad people? That's the question. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 20 says, The soul that sins shall surely die. Shall surely die. And so what's the answer? What is the meaning to this? Dear friends, death will come to us all. It does not matter how much money you have, how little you have. It does not matter who you know or who knows you. Death will come to us all. And whether it comes to us when we are old and advanced in years, or whether a tower falls on us, or whether we are swept up in a natural disaster, death will come to us all. In the broad scheme of things, yes, every calamity that happens in the broad scheme of things is a result of sin. We live in a fallen world, and all of creation has fallen with it. But as far as specifics, why does this one live and this one die? Why is this child healthy and this one sick? That's not up for us to know. It does not matter. Those things are, those things are known only to God, ultimately. But the question is this. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? God is merciful. And He has given us time right now to repent. Will you be ready when the tower falls on you? Will you be ready when you're hit by the drunk driver? Will you be ready when you're in the crosshairs of the mass shooter? Will you be ready when you get a bad report from the doctor? Jesus says, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He repeats it twice. He circumvents all the questions. Why does this happen? Were these worse sinners? He says, no. But here's the question for you. Are you ready? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus was a preacher of repentance. Do you know the very first word in the very first sermon preached by Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4? began with that word, repent. The very first word in his very first sermon was this, repent. Jesus was a, was a preacher of repentance. The very last thing he said to his apostles, right before he ascended up into heaven, he commissioned them to preach repentance. The apostles were preachers of repentance. So that... That is what the, that is the question that we must answer. Are we going to be ready when death comes to us? Jesus says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Dear friends, God is gracious. God is merciful. And He is giving us an opportunity right now to repent. Now, what is repentance? It's obviously very important. If it was the first word in His first sermon, and if it was in the 
last commission that he gave to his apostles right before he ascended back up into heaven, repentance must be important. He repeats it twice here. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That we are still alive right now is evidence of God's mercy. That we take our next breath, that our heart can take its next beat, that is evidence of God's mercy. If God gave us what we deserve, all of us would be dead right now. But we have time now to repent. What is repentance? What is repentance? Well, the word repentance in the Greek is the word metanoia. And metanoia means to change your mind. It means to change your mind. Change your mind from what? Well, if you listen to some of the prosperity preachers today, like Joseph Prince, Joseph Prince, for example, he says, we may not, referring to himself and Joel Osteen, he said, we may not use the word repentance. You know, we may not use that word, but we still teach people to repent all the time when they go from thinking negatively to thinking positively. So that's what repentance means. Just changing your mind, just having a more of a positive outlook on life. You know, everything is just sunshine and lollipops and unicorns. That's, that's what repentance means, just to change your mind. That's not repentance. Repentance, the word metanoia, does indeed mean to change your mind, but it doesn't mean to change your mind, become a more optimistic person. It means to change your mind concerning your sin. That we must stop professing our own righteousness. We must stop professing our own goodness. We must agree with God that we are sinners. We must agree with God that we are sinners, and we must agree with God that our sin has earned us death. Our sin has earned us judgment. We must agree with that. It is to recognize that we are sinners and we deserve God's wrath. We are guilty before God. Most people do not think they are deserving of God's wrath. But dear friends, until you agree with that, until you change your mind about that, you have no hope of being saved. You've got to agree that yes, I'm a sinner. And yes, if God gave me what I deserved, He would give me His wrath. And if I were to die in my sins, I would spend all of eternity in hell. And I would endure God's wrath forever and ever and ever. That is part of repentance. A change in mind. But, dear friends, we have to be careful because we can't simply use the meaning of a word. We can't just break, we can't always just break down a word and get its full meaning. Metanoia, repentance, it does mean to change your mind. But you can't always just look at, you can't just break down a word and get the full meaning all the time. You've got, also got to look at how it's used. The context. How does Scripture use this word? How is it used in Scripture? Because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. And so, how he uses the word will determine its meaning, correct? So let's look a little bit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist. He says, bear fruit, therefore, in keeping with repentance. So real repentance has fruit. It has, there is evidence of repentance. It bears fruit. Other people will be able to see the change in your life. The Apostle Paul, speaking to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, Paul said to Agrippa, he said, I kept declaring that all men should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So yes, repentance is a change in mind, but it's more than that. It's more than just an intellectual agreement that yes, I'm a sinner and yes, I deserve hell. Real repentance will result in fruit, in works, in deeds. 
We do not perform deeds in order to repent. But when God grants repentance, there will be deeds in keeping with that. There will be fruit in keeping with repentance. There will be fruit. So number one, repentance, change in mind. Number two, genuine repentance will result in fruit, in works. Number three, when we repent, we will have a love for the Word of God. We will have a love for the Word of God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 2, Peter says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, so that you may grow in respect to salvation. The one who has repented of his sins will have a love for the Word of God. If we have truly repented of our sins and we are new creatures in Christ, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit of God who resides in us will create in us a love for the Lord and a desire for His Word. If you have absolutely no desire for the Word of God, if there is nothing inside of you causing you to want to study His Word, then you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Number four, when you repent, you will have a love for the truth. You will have a love for the truth. A love for and a fidelity to the truth of God's Word. Someone who has truly repented and dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God will be absolutely committed to the truth of God's Word, no matter how much that commitment may cost him or her personally. No matter how much it may alienate us from our friends, no matter how much it may alienate us even from our own family members, if we've truly repented, if we are truly in Christ, our first commitment will be to the truth of God's Word, no matter what it may cost. And also, if we've truly repented, we will have a love for the brethren. We'll have a love for the brethren. We'll have love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, God has been gracious in allowing me opportunities to travel around the world and to preach. And no matter where I am, what culture I'm in, what language is spoken, when I'm with like-minded believers in Christ, there is a fellowship there, there is a kindred spirit there that transcends all of these superficial differences. And even though I've never met these people before, I love them. Because they're my brothers. Because they're my sisters. I love you. Because you're my brother, you're my sister. There's a love for the brethren. That is evidence of genuine repentance. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9-11 through 11, talks about two different kinds of sorrow over sin. Two different kinds of sorrow over sin. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, says that there is a worldly sorrow over sin that leads to death. But then he says, but there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Two different kinds of sorrow. A worldly sorrow that leads to death. What is a worldly sorrow? A worldly sorrow is simply an acknowledgement of guilt. And a, a worldly sorrow is, is a sorrow that is centered around ourselves. Centered around us. What would happen to me if my sin were found out? What would be the consequences to me? How would that affect my job? How would that affect my standing in the community? How would that affect my marriage? How would that affect me if my sin were exposed? And we try to cover our sins to protect ourselves. That is a worldly sorrow and that leads to death. But a godly sorrow leads to genuine repentance. What is a godly sorrow? A godly sorrow is that sorrow that is vertically oriented. 
A godly sorrow is that sorrow which, which causes us to grieve over our sins. Not because of what would happen to us, but to grieve over our sins because we understand that our sin has first and foremost grieved God. Psalm chapter 51, verse 3. David writing. And David says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. That's a godly sorrow. David had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sexually, he had sinned against her husband, Uriah, by having him put to death, putting him out on the front lines. He had sinned against them greatly. But notice... Notice he knew exactly, ultimately, the one to whom he has sinned. He says, against you, against you, God, against you alone have I sinned. I know that my sin is against you and I grieve for that. That's a godly sorrow. And that godly sorrow leads to genuine repentance. Do you grieve over your sin because you understand that your sin has grieved God? And the desire to turn from your sin, that's a godly sorrow. And notice David says, my sin is ever before me. Not the consequences are ever before me. Not I'm worried about what would happen to me. That's ever before me. That's always in my mind. What would happen to me? No, David says, my sin is ever before me. My sin. He grieved over his sin. That's the sign of regeneration. When we grieve over our sin and we desire to turn from sin, not because of what the sin may do to us personally, but because what our sin does to God and we desire to turn from that. Is that the kind of sorrow that you have over your sin? My sin is ever before me. Dear friends, salvation is not perfection. And I am not saying, nor does the Bible teach, that once you come to Christ, you'll never sin again. Yes, you will. I will. A Christian, a genuine Christian can stumble into sin, but a genuine Christian does not swim in it. A genuine Christian does not enjoy it. He does not look for opportunities to sin. When he does sin, it grieves him. Against you and you alone have I sinned, and my sin is ever before me. Not the consequences. Is sin. Do you have a desire to turn away from sin? Godly sorrow. And also, godly sorrow is a sorrow that abides. It's a sorrow that abides with us. It remains. It does not appear for a little while and then vanish away. Let me read to you what uh, English Puritan preacher Thomas Watson said of this. In his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, Thomas Watson said this, quote, Some will fall a-weeping at a sermon. Will fall a-weeping. They'll They'll hear a sermon and they'll fall weeping. But it is like an April shower soon over, or like a vein opened and presently stopped again. True sorrow must be habitual. Godly sorrow of sin is a sin that abides. It's a sin that remains. That's what we see in Romans chapter 7 when Paul writes, I, I do that thing which I hate. His sin grieved him. It's ever before us. It's a sin that remains. One of the paradoxes, of the Christian life is that the more mature we are in Christ, the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be increasing in our holiness. But as we increase in holiness 
And the Holy Spirit has more and more reign in our lives. And He uncovers, as we mature, He uncovers things in our lives that we see as sin that 10 or 15 years ago we didn't see as sin. That's a sign of a maturing Christian. So yes, dear ones, our sin should ever be before us. We should always weep over our sin, but don't despair. Let me say that again. Weep over your sin, yes, but don't despair. Because for those of us who are in Christ, our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Our sin not in part, but the whole has been nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. So weep, yes, but do not despair. Your salvation does not rest on what you do. Your salvation rests on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Have you ever heard a preacher say, and I'll wrap up with this, have you ever heard a preacher say that you have to know the time and date in which you were saved? And if you don't know that, you have no assurance of your salvation. And you hear a lot of people with dramatic testimonies. You know, some of these evangelists that go around with these dramatic testimonies. Oh, yeah, I was a... I was a drug addict and I was uh, a, a, a drug dealer and, and, I, and I drowned puppies and I was just this horrid, horrid man. And then all of a sudden they had this dramatic experience and, and this, this seminal experience of their Damascus Road and, and God just crushed them and broke them. And, and um, that's, they knew that I was saved on September the 14th, 1974 at 5.23 in the afternoon. Some people know exactly when they were saved. But if you don't, don't despair. If you don't know exactly when you were saved, dear ones, please do not take that in and of itself as a sign that you have not been converted. Don't do that. Yes, there is a time. There is a time. There's a, a moment in time in which we pass from death to life. That happens in an instant. There is a time when we pass from death to life, when we go from being in Adam to being in Christ. And that does happen at a moment in time. But we're not always aware of it when it does happen. I heard uh, Dr. Steve Lawson give this illustration, and I thought it was really helpful. And uh, I'll change the interstate. He uses the illustration of driving on the interstate. I'll change the interstate just a little bit to one that I'm more familiar with. Growing up in Mississippi, Interstate 20, I-20, runs... East and west, all the way through Texas, through Louisiana, goes through Streetport, Louisiana, goes through my hometown of Vicksburg, Jackson, and on the, um, into Atlanta. So that's kind of, and uh, Steve Lawson gives the illustration. If you're driving on interstate, let's say you're driving on Interstate 20, and you're in Louisiana, and you're going west. Say you've just come out of Streetport, which is in northwest Louisiana. You come out on I-20. And just about 10 or 15 miles outside of Shreveport, Louisiana, is the Texas state line. Well, you're driving along, and if you don't happen to notice the sign that says, Welcome to Texas, you drive right past the sign, and you cross from Louisiana into Texas. But if you don't notice the sign that says, Welcome to Texas, you don't realize it. I mean, there's no flash of energy when you cross into Texas. The the skies don't open. The angels don't come down and start singing. You know, you're not aware of it. But you're in a different state. But the further you drive, the further you drive into Texas, 
You start looking around and all of a sudden you start to notice that things look a little bit different. The, the trees start getting a little bit shorter. They say everything's bigger in Texas. Well, the trees aren't. I can tell you that. The further you get into Texas, the trees start getting a little shorter. It's not quite as green. It's more arid. And you look around you and you realize, I'm in a different state. With a little bit of background in the, in the rear view mirror, you realize, I'm in a different state. And dear friends, sometimes conversion is like that. We may not always realize exactly the moment in time in which it happens, but with a little bit of background, a little bit of distance there in the, in the rear view mirror, we notice we're different. My affections are changed. The sins that I used to love, now I hate. I used to have no desire for the Word of God, now I do. I used to have no commitment to the truth, and I would flip and flop with the prevailing winds. Now I'm committed to it. Now I have a love for the truth. Now I, I hate my sin. I grieve over it. I have a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Christ. I have a love for the brethren. And all of a sudden you notice you're a different person. You've passed from one state to the next. So you may not always be aware of it exactly when it happens, but given a little time, you'll know it. Are you a different person now than you were before you came to Christ? Close with this. For the one who is lost here this morning, for the one who has not yet trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, for the one who has not yet repented of sins, the message from Luke chapter 13 is this. Death will come. It may come in an instant. It may come before you leave this building. Your heart may stop before you leave this building. You may live to be a hundred years old. But when death does come, are you ready? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. And so if you are not sure of where you are with Jesus Christ, I implore you, get real honest before God. Go to Him and confess your sins before Him and ask God to grant you repentance. You can't repent on your own. Genuine repentance is granted by God. God gives it. And so if you're not sure, go to Him. Ask Him to grant you repentance. Place your faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for you on the cross. And then rest in that. Rest in His provision. For the one who is here and, and you are a Christian, rest in His provision. Your salvation does not rest on your efforts, your, your works. It rests in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Weary of your own self-efforts. Heavy laden with the guilt of your sin. Come to me and I will give you rest. The rest of real repentance. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, what a, uh, what a relief, what uh, an assurance is ours uh, to know that our salvation does not rest on what we have done. Our salvation rests on what Jesus Christ has done for us, who He is, what He did for us on the cross. 
And so, Father, I, I pray that Your Holy Spirit, even now, Lord, if, if there are those here this morning, and I'm sure that there are, people who have not yet come to that place of repentance, we pray that Your Holy Spirit would grant that. We pray that You would grant a godly sorrow over sin. We pray that You would grant them a new heart, new repentance. The message from Your Word is clear. Death will come to us all. We do not know when it will come. But when it comes, we must face the judge. We must face You. And unless we repent, unless You grant the repentance, we will all likewise perish. Father, we love You only because You have loved us first. It's in Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.